Howdy gang, Backcountry Barbells, Joe Shamanic, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Day, and um, nobody else. But we're going to get into more from our great hunt in eastern, the eastern Pacific Northwest. Um, so uh, we're fired. I love being able to get all those directions in. It really will help folks pinpoint where we were at and what we were doing, but having a great time. But I can't, I can't talk about it enough, Jeremy. The more you like dive into the Pacific Northwest, you figure out how cool of a region it is. And it really is two separate places. Uh, the Eastern side of even our state in Oregon and in the Western side and, I mean, honestly, I think if you hunted just the Pacific Northwest or even if you decided like you were going to become an expert on just hunting Washington, you'd have a hard time doing it because it's just so different from east to west. No, I agree. Yeah, it's very difficult because they're two different um, well, species of elk and they have, as we noticed, they have completely different um, patterns and um, the topography is different. It's, yeah, it's just two different types of hunts yeah it's different and it also makes me wonder like what's with this like um what's with this idea that we always got to go to new places like we talk about it like and even like how we don't want to you know i i want to always go to different spots but even with that and there's you know like i was really fired up to go you know to cross state lines and to go to the eastern side um but like why you know, like, why is this this thirst? This And it seems to me like it's something that's a human thing. Like, we want to explore. You know, we want to conquer things. We want to get different experiences under our belt. But, you know, it also makes me respect people who just go deep in a certain spot, too. Right? But, uh, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing that we feel the need we have to do. I know. And I, like you said, I think it's just a human thing. I mean, I... It... Would we be more successful if we went to the same spot? Probably. But then again, maybe not. And yeah. you will never know unless you go on the other side of the ridge. Yeah. And on the other side of the ridge. And on the other side of that ridge. And then the next thing you know, Joe and Jeremy are doing a freak 17-mile <laughs> loop that's and getting back at camp at 10. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Regretting it. But then like the next day, we're like, man, we're glad we did that because now we know where not to go anymore. <laughs> so... <laughs> Exactly. Not taking that path again. Yeah. So, but I also think there's something underground too in that, and like our genetics. Like, if you look at, um, like, you know, you dive into hunting, you find out that you, you know, anyone who wants to call a hunter Elmer Fudd, I would have a problem with. Like, they're not ignorant rednecks who hunt. Like, and there are some folks who might play up to that, but like, even folks who you might classify as like an ignorant redneck, they generally have some like deep ingrained, even intuitive like biological knowledge of these critters, right? So like even yeah, as even as I've explored elk, like there's this there's terms like you can pick up like genetic diversity in terms of like any critter is really important. So I wonder like, and when you talk about like genetic diversity, it's like this is one of the reasons that like a stock salmon in a plurific native salmon runs a bad thing because you're all of a sudden inputting like the same genetics amongst all these different critters. And it just, when you have a lack of genetic diversity, all of a sudden your whole population is predisposed to maybe having negative effects of certain diseases or um, when you have a lack of genetic diversity, environmental factors can really hurt a species and some things like that. So I also wonder if, like, if we know ingrained in us is that we want to pursue genetic diversity, I wonder, too, if, like, that also affects our behavior, where we also want to maybe interact with things and and, and get more, like, um, behavioral diversity, because at the genetic level, we have this thirst to you know, want to, want to move the species along by interacting with more, you know what I mean? This is why, does that make sense? What I'm trying to ask or just kind of thinking through? Uh, yeah, somewhat. So you're basically saying we have this hunger to explore. Do we have this inner hunger to also change our attitudes or look at different attitudes or different is that what you're kind of saying? Like, not attitudes, maybe, but just... Uh... Well, I, well, what I'm saying is there, there's a... To, to further the species along, it's in yeah. us to further our genetics. And this is why, like, um, this is why I pursued, I pursued 
um, a marriage with Eliza, right? There's like something yeah. in there where me and her mix our genetics, and then our kids will go mix the genetics, and you would hope that that furthers the human species. That's a, that's a, like the biological level. This is why we know that things like um, intermixing with marriages, it's not good for us because it dumbs the genetics down. You know, it's just not good, right? So I guess what I'm saying is because we know that that's genetically we thirst to do that, so I just wonder if that also affects our behavior where we also want to go out and just gather more experiences just because like inside of us it's it's something that's in us as a species to want to further our own DNA but then because of that there's this thirst to just explore. I'm just trying to get at why we want to explore so much, you know what I mean? And I'm I'm going <laughs> I'm going back into like biology a little bit to kind of figure out why, you know, and it's just, you know, it's just kind of that's that's the thought. I wonder if there's like real research behind that. No, I'm sure there is. I mean, it's, you know, it's like that old saying that opposites attract. You're always like, my wife is completely different than I, and yep. then and she vice versa, right? But if we were the same and we got together, the likelihood of us staying together isn't going to be that be that long. I mean, statistically. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that's the question. You put it in real layman's terms, and that's good because that that's another way to put it. Like these old adages, and these like, um, you know, what is it like a, a what is it called when thing consistency or um, cliches, right? Cliches yeah. become cliches because they're real, like they work, right? So like this opposites <laughs> yeah. attract things. So even from like a biological standpoint, we know that to some degree you have to have some differences. Right. So I don't know. Right. So I don't know. I just wonder that, ha- you know, I guess is also a way to put this is like nature versus nurture, right? Like, you know, what do we have to do? What do we want to do? And how much of those things affect each other? It's just an, just interesting. It, it's, it's crazy. These goofy little thought experiments we do, but, um, I know. <laughs> and, and what's crazy is how we do want to, I mean, we, thrive and yearn to learn yeah different things to explore and those that don't statistically typically end up dying younger which is really pretty wild because people that do the same thing over and over and don't explore and don't expand their mind or just kind of they're they're so stuck in a routine typically are the ones that end up going a kind of little bit crazy, honestly, and then B, they end up having a less less life expectancy. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I mean, there's some heroes in my past life, like guys like uh, you know uh, Bear Bryant, uh, Woody Hayes, um, even even Joe Paterno. Um, you know, uh, these guys when they stopped coaching, and you might say, well, they just spent all their time coaching, but these guys just went deep into coaching. I, if you look at what Bear Bryant was doing with the start of his career where he was micromanaging every single aspect of the teams that he coached. You know, you can go to like um, the Junction Boys, one of his first teams, Texas A&M. He micromanaged everything, coached every position, whatever. But then later on in his career, he was more coaching coaches and learning different things and getting more into recruiting and whatnot. So like he evolved and he just went deep into learning more about coaching. As with some other folks, they're all over the place doing certain things. But the what you're getting to is Bear Bryant died like, you know, weeks after he retired from coaching, you know, and this is a consistent thing. These guys who go super deep into things, you know, to me, that's why I'm telling my wife, I don't see myself retiring. I'm just going to do something different, you know? Yeah, exactly. So. Because retirement sometimes, well, and if you look at it and say, I mean, I've talked to several people that have retired and they're so bored and this and that, and they don't have a hobby because they're not exploring. They're not using their mind. They're not doing Sudoku or doing, you know, playing games or all these other things. I mean, and then all of a sudden 65, 67, they're gone. They've been retired for two to five years. And I don't know, I guess I get, and that's another weird thing is that once you decide in your mind that you're done, the body follows. Sure. Yeah, sometimes. That's why. Don't be done. Be a shark. Keep swimming, right? That's- keep swimming, <laughs> man. Upstream. Yeah, keep hiking, whatever you're going to do. But, um, well, cool. <laughs> so a little thought experiment at the top of the show. Um, if you guys are, like, biologists or know something, if um, you know, behavioralists, um, that's what's cool. I mean, uh, anthropologists, whatever you want to do, I'm sure there's a lot of cool stuff about that. But um, 
Hey, maybe you're also wondering like why um, a personal trainer is keep talking about hunting or why they do this podcast devoted to training and hunting, but it's because it's a big thing. And even with the continued failure to notch a tag on my end, um, I'm still more and more into this. And um, to answer the question why I keep doing it, I want to throw another reason in the pool, Jeremy. Another one that might be kind of a dark reason. Um, I think I like hunting because I'm a greedy bastard um, and I'm not afraid... <laughs> I'm not afraid to say it. I'm going to put so, it out there. <laughs> so why are you such a greedy bastard? I want a freezer freezer full of the greatest meat ever. And I think wild game is the best. Um, you know, a lot of people, when they dive into nutrition, in fact, I just picked up a client who's a vegan, and she's on the same health quest that I'm on. Like, let's just be super healthy. But her her quest is leading us down this path to be a vegan, um, and I haven't had the chance to break it to her that – I have a blood thust, bl- a blood lust for meat, and I want meat, and I think it's great, and that'll come. You want to kill it yourself? <laughs> I want to kill it myself. But you know, <laughs> my journey, similar to this young lady's, is taking me to this place where you know when I you, when you get into CrossFit, you're you're achy and you're sore, and you realize nutrition can fix that, and then you deep dive into nutrition, and you want quality meat because uh, meat is just, in my opinion, there's not another n- more nutrient dense place to get it and then you come to find out well man it's not the flesh that's really nutrient dense it's these other things like the bones and the organs well how can i get those and then you come to find out man wild game is the best places for these things then you come to find out well dang it if i kill it myself i can get all the stuff and then you come to find out if i kill an elk not only can i get all this stuff i can get all the stuff in a large quantity so this is a long way of saying that, guess what? I'm probably going to go after moose eventually. But but I'm greedy, man. I want a freezer full of meat. You know, I have 33 pounds of your elk. Um, I have a couple pounds of Andre's deer. And I'm in the process now of breaking it to my wife that after spending already 13 days in the woods during the early archery season that I got to go back out and fill my fill my unfilled tags in late season so but honestly and a lot of it's fueled by this greedy pursuit of having more and the best wild game in my freezer than the other guy and i ain't afraid to say it i'm greedy i want it and there's lots of reasons for that greed but i'm not going to deny it anymore i know it's not the greatest thing but i'm greedy and i want more that's it (laughs) hey man we're all in the same boat you know the camp rules used to be that we uh split it up evenly amongst everybody and then Last year we changed it because my greediness was like, man, I keep shooting these things (laughs) (laughs) and not bragging. But I mean, it's just it was like, golly, you know, there should be a reward a little bit. And it just made more sense for all of us to just kind of 50, you know, 100. The shooter gets 50. The other people split it. And then that gives other guys maybe a little more thirst or yearn to want to shoot one more. So their greediness will take in effect, and then they want half of it. Yeah, and, like, it does – greed is a good motivator, and it shouldn't be the only thing. And greed might be a a tough way to put it, but essentially that's what it comes down to. But And another way to put it is to the victor goes the spoils. Like, to yeah. some degree, you should emphasize the training that goes into it, right? Like, and I love the way we break it up. And my first year, actually, we've been doing this for three years. It was my first year in camp that this is how the, it went. And to me, it made sense. I re- oh, yeah. I, in fact, I remember thinking, like, when you guys were talking about how you divvied up meat, that everyone got the same cut. And it, I was like, that's so, I th- great for the guys who don't do anything. But almost to me, that, that's, like a, that's a, like a welfare system for hunting camp. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to be perfectly honest, like if I was to be real specific, like I'm not a big fan of like lots of rules, but I would almost be like, man, you got to pack something out to be part of the take two. Like, like, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I get it. Like, or to some degree, and there's all types of ways to help with the pack out. Once it's in camp, you can help pack it to the truck. So, you know, even if you weren't there when it happened, it's not like an elk pack out is like a short thing like you get a chance to put the work in but yeah it just forces you to up your game like for me the facts are i should have an elk in the freezer right now but you know my shot process wasn't as dialed in you know like you know i talking with you afterwards maybe i worked my range from out in instead of in out which could have affected it and there's all lots of things but i think 
I think by having this like bit of a greedy or to the victor goes the spoils mentality a bit where you emphasize winning, you know, I think that that, that, um, that's a great motivational factor to get your shit together (laughs) and not just show up to (laughs) camp. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But like you said, it's kind of that welfare system. If you know, there's two or three guys that shoot everything out of the six or seven, maybe the three or four are like, I'm here for the ride because I'm just here for the ride. Yeah, that's right. I'm having fun and I'm just, but I'm not like, they don't let their senses take over. They don't divulge into it 100%, maybe 70. Yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe they are 100% and it's just a matter of their luck and that's just the way it goes sometimes. But the way humans think, you know, takes in effect. Yeah. Lack of least resistance. Yeah, but I love our setup. I love the way we do it. It put, I think it puts the right emphasis and it, it ties in the right motivational factors. And, you know, with this idea of like more meat and trophies, like in, you know, there's a cool documentary folks should check out. It's called the, uh, you heard this documentary called the motivation factor. Who, who, who was in it? I don't know. Like what it, what this documentary does is it seems like I have, or I might have read the book about that. I, I can't remember. I'm a <laughs> I'm a PE teacher, and what this documentary does is it emphasizes the how important a physical culture is in um, developing the mind, body, and the spirit. And obviously, for for obvious reasons, being physically active, we can make that connection that it's going to make our body stronger. But we forget how important it is from a spiritual sense. And how important it is from a, a mental standpoint in terms of learning. So what this documentary does is it just it kind of starts out with this um, idea that JFK was putting into place when he was president. Like, hey, we're going to have a physical culture in this United States. It's going to start in PE classes. And it goes back to how, you know, in Greek and Roman times this was important. And it really parallels this really cool high school PE program that was started in the 60s at a school in California. And you should see these dudes. They were shredded. They're doing all these bodyweight exercises. And, in fact, it makes one point that, like, guys were getting deconditioned when they were going into specific sports practices because they were losing some PE time to practice their sports, and they weren't getting that PE time. So, like, they were putting good athletes on sports teams. And you'll see these kids, lots of push-ups, walking on these parallel bars. And it used to be a program that was in lots of places. And one of the things they did is they were afraid of this program because part of it, they had this motivational factor. They had a trunk system. You'll see this. These boys in these PE classes, they didn't train with their shirts on. These kids were shredded, but they had a trunk system. So, like, when you first started out, everybody wore white trunks. And then the, over the course of whatever, your goal was to get the blue trunks. And when <laughs> to get the blue trunks, you, like, had to do, like, this. Um, one of the tests you had to do to get the blue trunks, you had to carry a buddy for five miles. And the buddy's feet weren't allowed to touch the ground. And the buddy that you carried had to weigh 10 pounds more than you. That was just one of the tests. There was wow. A, there was a 17-point checklist you had to go through to get the blue trunks. And this was a PE program that was in thousands of schools. And what this, this documentary shot after the fact, and they had all these people who went through the program talking about how it impacted their lives. But one of the reasons that people kind of nixed the program. They said, well, you're going to make the kids who feel really bad about themselves if they are always stuck in the blue shorts or if they're stuck in the white shorts and they're just going to, they're going to affect their self-esteem. Well, a long-term study of these people, guess what happened? Their, their their self-esteem was not affected negatively by not wearing the white shorts. So, uh, it, but it motivated these kids to be great. It motivated these kids to enjoy PE. It motivated these kids um, to have a great program and have great lives. So I would say check out that documentary. And, um, you know, I like the fact that we put some emphasis on being good in camp to get more meat So uh, and to have more greed and to, to, to get it up. So I think we found a good balance with it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. It's been working out great for me the last three years. <laughs> And honestly, look, it's going to make me a better hunter. You know, yeah, I'm, absolutely. It's going to make me a better hunter. I'm going to go out this late season. I'm going to be a better shot. I'm already refining my process. You know what I mean? I mean, I really thought I was dialed in, but you know, the one thing I was lacking was real, 
you know, in-game experience, for lack of a better term. But getting some and applying some of those lessons uh, to my practice is going to be awesome. So um, get greedy, folks. Get greedy. And if there's anything to be greedy about, it's wild game um, because it's really good for you. Yeah, and I think the other aspect you got to think about it, too, is that, you know, I didn't wear the blue trunks for many, many years in hunting. That's right. You missed shots, too. (laughs) I mean, for... 10, 12, 14 years, I was in white trunks, and then I finally elevated to the blue trunks. Yeah. Same thing in my skateboarding career. When I was younger, nobody wanted to skateboard with me, and I just, you stick with it, you stick with it, you don't get, dis, you know, what is the word? You don't get uh, discouraged any bit. You just, you keep studying the course and keep trying, trying, trying until you're conquer, and then you will conquer. I mean, I joke that I got the elk in the last three, four, five, six, whatever years, but it was many years of hard work yeah. to where I've got the process dialed in a little better. Yeah. Well, and that's what's important about even like rites of passage. I mean, and we were talking, I mean, you even told me after missing, you know, swinging and missing was like, Hey, you know, I've done that a few times. And what I, I remember you, even when I missed the shot on that mule deer and I said, damn it, I should have, I should have taken the time to range it. And you're like, no, you did the right thing. Cause you're developing your process and through those mistakes are how you get better. Right. So yeah. it's cool to be encouraged by a guy who's being successful now who's missed shots, but it's also cool to go back and talk about why. But I also think it's cool, like even in this trunk system, you didn't go from white shorts to blue shorts. It was like red to white to gold. Like there were a bunch of levels, and I think each step you take, when it's done right, is like a bit of a rite of passage that I think we're also thirsty for. We just want to know that we're awesome now. We just want to know that, you know, I've I've – completed this to say that I'm good enough at that. And I think that's an important thing for kiddos and adults. And that's something that I'm super surprised of is, you know, as I'm approaching 40, I still have this thirst to prove myself. And I think it's cool, you know, so I'm greedy to get better too, you know? So, yeah, no, I, um, I tried so many years to prove myself. And then one day I just said, I can't, I just, I, ain't gonna, I can't prove anything to anybody. It's all about me <laughs> yeah. proving it to myself. So yeah, I and mean, that's really when it changed my whole my hunting experience, my life, everything. I mean, so you went more intrinsic, pretty to your motivation. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's what's cool. Like too, like you, you think it's the shorts. So there was also a really cool story. Of this girl, she wanted to be like the first girl to ever earn the blue shorts. And, like, it just went how for years and years and years she did this. And it came down to, like, the final day when they were, like, going to close the school and how, like, the, the the PE coach ran with her and they made it happen. But, like, it was crazy to watch this girl tell this story. And she's in her 40s or 50s now talking about it. And she was, like, to tears. You know what I mean? So it's it's cool how, like, something – and this works especially with kids, how you can get them kind of hooked in the beginning on this like extrinsic factor like shorts or a sticker or a trophy. But man, if you keep sticking with it, eventually that begins to take on much more meaning, right? So I think that's where you're at with this. I mean, and I think that's a natural progression for everybody. If you do it long enough, it, you know, you know you're in the right place if the thought of it just brings you to like emotions and tears and, and, and joy and all the – I mean, hell – I remember me walking out of that after the first elk rut that we encountered. Um, I was oh, at the I, end of the day, <laughs> I was in dang tears twice <laughs> over this damn thing, <laughs> you know. But then the next day you walk up and you go for it, and you know, in a way it's rough, but in a way it's great. Yeah, and that you you know when you're having those tearful moments, what are you doing? You're thinking about your failure, and then you start thinking about how I could correct my failure and all the different things. And we've talked about this in the early days of the podcast. You start going through this mental checklist on how to do things differently. That's the experience that you have to go through. And some people go through way more experience on it. And some people, it takes less experience. But even with any of that, there's you may be super successful hunter all the time. But then there's another aspect where you always have to work on. We always have something where we need to work on. Yeah. Right? In any part of the hunting life or anything like that. So you, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You well, know what I'm getting at? Well, you can, people take this to weird places too, where, and this is where this goes to the initial thing that I brought up, which is kind of cool to get back to it. 
This is why we want to either go to new places or try to hunt new critters. Or if you look at someone even like um, an example offhand is like Aaron Snyder, the Kafaru um, lead right now. You know, he, you know, was a rifle hunter and then he was a compound hunter with a bow. And right now, if you follow him and what he's doing, he's doing some amazing things with just a traditional bow, right? So people upskill that way. So that's what's cool. I mean, you can go really deep into these things and attack it different ways to, to, um, you know, that's what's, again, what's cool, I think, about hunting is you can get this mind-body-spirit thing in many different ways. And the gear you use, the places you go, the critters you chase, you know, there's all different ways to, to, to continue a progression and to stay interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. So And uh, it's fun. Oh, and it's fun. Yeah, it's the best fun. <laughs> it's the most fun. It's the most fun. There's a couple things that might be more fun in the moment, but it's up there. It's up there. Um, so I, I want to get on more of the experience stuff. If you guys want to contribute your wise to why you you hunt or why you do anything, let us know. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep diving into this journey um, just to build the case. Um, All right. So, so this way, when over the course of maybe the course of this whole year this year, I can just so say go listen to those episodes. I'm sick of talking about why I hunt. Um, it's there for you to hear, and there's all kinds of good and bad reasons. So right now, I'm 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 on this deep, this deep exploration as to why, and I'm I'm trying to also come to terms with it because it's not all the good stuff. There's some real deep, dark, bad reasons, but I think that that dichotomy of this sport is also the lore of it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> so what's next on your list, there, brother? Oh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see down the road. I don't know what it is. Okay. We'll see down the road. We'll keep it going. But I do want to relive part of our hunt because I did learn a bunch. Um, and I want to get into stalking a little bit, if we could. Um, just because um, we yeah. did we did get to go on a few stalks. Um, and the first one was actually, I think, the second night. Was it the second evening or third evening? We were walking back to camp. It was the second evening. Yeah, it was crazy because we were walking back to camp, and I remember you going, "Holy shit, there's an elk!" <laughs> and it was cool because even it was it was really cool because it was probably my favorite way to hunt. I think if I had to, if I had to go, I think the calling's cool, super intense. Um, but my favorite way to hunt is to still hunt through big dark timber. I love that. Just to kind of sneak oh, and yeah, me f- too. you feel like you're a commando. You feel like Rambo, right? It's just cool. And it's especially cool when you can see an animal that doesn't see you. I mean, that's when it's game Yeah, it really put your skills to the <laughs> test. Yeah, and we got pretty close to one. Um, and uh, we'll, what was it? And again, we got busted by mule deer again. These damn mule deer were everywhere. Um, but we got, what was it? Was it like, was it? Three cows and two calves. We ended up deciding it two, was two, two cows and a calf. Two cows and a calf. Um, and you had initially three mule deer. Yeah, three mule deer. You had initially picked up these animals. Well, how far away do you think we saw them? We kind of just saw the the rump of one, right? I think if I range finding them right, it was in our special zone of 100, 120 yards. <laughs> 120, 120, yeah, 100, 120 yards. Um, it was towards the end of the day. We probably it was about 5 o'clock. No, I want to say the sun was already almost down because your stock was only about a half hour, and then it was dark. Yeah, it was crazy right at the end of the day, so we had to get a little aggressive with it. But um, we were trying to use some trees. Wind was decent. Um, but as I really started to put the pressure on the elk, um, damn it, if there weren't a bunch of little baby mule deer that I didn't see that were probably about, I mean, they weren't very big. I mean, that was part of the reason they might've been bedded down in grass. Um, they were kind of feeding maybe, but they were all stacked up on this great water source, um, that we were even using for water to pump in the beginning. But those damn mule deer until those mule deer, ran through the elk feeding zone those elk were happy feeding away from us it was a great it was it was working out it was working out perfect i mean you had a phenomenal stock using i mean tree to tree you were able to position yourself the trees are wide enough for your body so that was like four feet because your shoulders are so broad yeah that's right (laughs) i'll take it i'll take it i'll take it so let me let me ask you this how do you find this balance of because in this position, we kind of ha- it's late in the evening. We had to put a little bit of pressure on the animals and ourselves to get into position before shooting. Because not only was the sun going down, but we were in the deep dark timber, so light wasn't great. So we had to get in position 
sooner rather than later. But I guess my question is like, how the heck do you find that sweet spot in a stalk where you're moving well enough to account for everything, but you're not moving so slow where you're not putting yourself in position to make a shot because man, I felt like I was doing well. Like, you know, I had the binoculars out a little bit. I was ranging out. I was trying to scan before I moved, but damn it. If I didn't go from one tree to the next, just at a place where I was going to make a shot or put myself in position where, dang it, there weren't two mule deer who looked like they saw me coming from a mile away. Like they were just like, Look at that guy. <laughs> and they ran through the damn situation. <laughs> yeah, that was just the tough luck because your stock yeah. was good. Um, I mean, it, you were doing a great stock. So it was just the, it just how that really panned out. I mean. Shit happens. <laughs> I think you did everything right. Yeah. We were raced up against time. Yeah. We're trying to get in there. And um, I think the beautiful thing is, is with you putting that stock on there, you got to see really how much um, you could get away with and what you couldn't get away with. Yeah. As far as approaching an animal. Yeah, and I think well, and that's interesting too because I think it, what's funny thing is putting that stock on the noise. You told me don't worry about the crunchy stuff because I was almost going to take my boots off and get after it. Uh, then I had a wet sock. I might have had wet. You know, Ellsworth socks are great, but if you step in in wet mud with just a sock on, you're going to have a hard time keeping them dry. But yeah. um. You know, it just wasn't dry either. But 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 the noise doesn't affect the elk. But I wonder too if that noise didn't affect the mule deer. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely did. Yeah, I guarantee those mule deer had you pinned from noise. Before. You think? Yeah, from the noise, just from yeah. one or two branches, because they're a little more sensitive. Where the elk are just like they're noisy by nature, right? But yeah. mule deer are pretty quiet and. <clears throat> they're really sensitive on about predators. Yeah, and look at the ears on a mule deer. The the ears on a mule deer might be bigger than an elk, but you know. The, yeah. <laughs> so 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 that's what's yeah. interesting too, right? So, but but the you know what's crazy is those mule deer ran off and put the elk on alert, and then we had like the Mexican standoff of all time. Like, how long do you think that? Because the one the one elk, the one cow, she stared in our direction for a long time. I mean, the whole time I, I, I she went until the sun. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, she 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 was on us. But cool thing is, I was still using the trees. I stayed low. I don't think she ever really saw me. Um, and uh, you know, again, as the light was getting dark, we just had to keep putting the pressure on them. But she 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 stared in our direction. El- cow elk are very patient. <laughs> They'll sit there and look oh. until they confirm. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, she was there for 10 minutes until the until none of us could see. Yeah. And then she moseyed off and started barking. Yeah, she made that really cool noise that you don't want to hear. Like it's the coolest noise to hear. I I would it's up there with a really cool bugle and a growl. Um when a when a cow elk is really alert and they're barking and growling and they really want to know like who's there. And and it's really cool to see the behavior. Like a, a mule deer didn't wait to confirm; they're gonna hear it, look at us, get the hell out of there. But elk really are courageous in their sense. Where they, it seems to me like they, if they can't pick it up wind wise, they're gonna sit there and try to confirm it visually before yeah. they before they make a move. And that was really cool. There was there were a couple hunts where that happened, and this one in particular was cool because she. She barked at us for a long time. Even after dark, they stayed in that clear field, and we could hear them barking and growling at us. Like they, she wanted to know what the hell was in that woods. Yeah, she was. She wanted a true confirmation of who is it, who dat. Yeah, who dat. And they do it with a cool noise, man. If you've never heard that one, uh, look it up. Find a way. Um, Elk Nut has a cool app where you can hear a live one and. You know, get on the YouTube, but you know that was a fun stalk. I think, I think I, I don't know how how close. I, I never could range it. My rangefinder to tell you how dark it was. My, I had a really hard time ranging the animal after a certain point. Um, but uh, I don't know. What do you think? I got something like seventy five yards, almost into that kill zone, if not closer. I want to say, yeah, you were within sixty. Yeah. By the time you got to that, the double trees. Yeah. I think if you would have popped out. Drew knew your distance. You would have been sixty. Yeah, well, I think the key might have been. And let's let's play this out like if it would have happened. Let's say it was like, hey, light enough. Let's do it. Maybe if I got to within, because I I had set a zone 
I decided 50 yards was my time. Before we got into the woods, in my mind, I was like, I'll take a shot 50 and under. 50 and under is what I decided. Um, do you think in that situation um, where you're stalking like that, the play is to do what you said? Like, I had good cover behind that good tree. Would the thought have been to draw and then slowly step out and put the pin on it? I mean, is that the play there, or is it to get your position, then find a way to draw? No, I would have, in that particular situation, I would have drew, stepped out, and you know me, I, I, that's why the practicing the quick shots like we were talking when we're out there in the field, so you don't have, you don't go through the process in your head, you just step out, range inside your head, and then if you don't have a shot, lower it down, if you're not comfortable with it, lower it down, but at least you're in position, because they're going to sit there and still try to confirm like, wait a second, that wasn't there just a minute ago, and why are they doing that? And then you, yeah. sometimes they'll give you 10, 15, 20 seconds before they bounce. Sometimes they bounce right away. But when you jump out and then you do the motion of the draw, for some reason that always tweaks them out. Well, it's, it, maybe it's too much movement. What I've kind of picked up, and to, to the it seems to me like in terms of a visual sense, I don't... I'm pretty sure elk don't see color, but they pick up movement. In particular, I'm finding that they their edge detection is really big. So, like, once you establish a silhouette, the longer you can hold that silhouette, the better you're going to be in keeping that animal calm. But if you just, like, say you... The worst case scenario is, like, let's say you get up there and you start acting like an octopus and you got, you know, all eight limbs... Um, doing different things so that's even like where i'm thinking is if you can step out and hold your silhouette for a long time um, like i've even heard guys say like one of the best ways to range even a deer is if you can see what i'm doing don't pick up your range finder and then kind of loop out of your silhouette if you can kind of house your if you can kind of house your range finder or whatever optics you're going to use within your silhouette the animal won't be able to pick it up so that would even right. that would even lead me to believe that even in terms of setting your draw, that's why even like, you know, when I got trained um, by National Archery and Schools Program, they do a really cool job of saying keep your shot in your lane. So you know, you know, you have this little two foot lane. Everything should operate within that lane. And I think as a hunter, when you're putting a good stalk on, you probably want to limit your your movement to within your silhouette and stay stacked up because. If you can move slow within that silhouette, you're giving the animal less edge to pick up, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you don't want to do any kind of jagged or fast movements or anything like that. Everything's got to be slow controlled and then held tight for yeah. sure. So I tried to do that, <laughs> but I just kind of ran out of time and got busted by a damn mule deer. And the funny thing is about that mule deer, they those mule deer, even in that sense, did what mule deer do. They get like... 40 yards away and then turn around and check again. Right. And, yep. and elk and other animals seem to do that. Um, these cows, I couldn't see them do that. They kind of went into this wall. They crossed the Creek, got up into this clear cut, um, not clear cut into this meadow. And then, um, then we're looking to confirm again, but it was pretty thrilling. It was fun. It was a great way. And it was even in the slow initial days of our hunt. Um, it was super fun to put, meaningful steps to the ground man that's just a fun thing to do if no one's done it <laughs> yeah it's the best it's so fun i mean um and it really works on your patience right because you want to just keep running but you have to like you're saying you have to check everything around you got to check your perimeter you got to do this you got to do that before you move on because they catch you it's game over it's game over but you got pretty so that was the closest stalk i got to an elk um, that was one of the only times I got to within shooting range of an elk on, on this hunt. But um, later on, you know, if you guys go back to our Who is Dusty Juster podcast, um, that was probably our most exciting day, I thought, of hunting. Yeah. And we've recapped it. So check out episode 91. But the crazy part is after that hunt that got busted by Dusty, <laughs> or Justy Duster, after that hunt got busted, you know, we sat around in the afternoon and we found a herd and we heard a growler and you actually got to put a much more bigger stock on a herd and almost that giant how big was that elk it was one of the biggest elk you've seen he right? was as the biggest elk he's he was 
he was 400. He's a public- plus or minus 10 or 20, but he's. I mean, when he put his antlers back, he could almost touch his butt with his antlers. Yeah, he was a public. And body wise, he was twice the size of any of the cows. Yeah, he's a public land giant. Um, uh, no one would pass on this guy. Um, I have video of him. He's pretty amazing. But you know, it's crazy because we we after getting busted, we just heard like a faint growl, kind of in a creek bottom to our right, and then we closed. Yeah, we let out a locator, right? Yeah. And, and I think we come to find out he probably wasn't locate. He, I don't know if he was responding to our call as much as he was pushing it. This guy didn't want any elk near his. He had his harem established. He had his twelve cows or eight or how many he had were twelve. In, it was about twelve. He had. Yeah. And I, it was cool because I have them. Um, I have the herd on video quite a bit. I have this elk on video quite a bit, and the video just doesn't do it justice. If anything, from this hunting experience i want to get a better camera in the woods because i could have got i could have got some unbelievable footage especially this herd but you know we heard them and we started putting the moves on them and probably the opportunity that we don't know how close we were is this one because as we were closing distance all of a sudden that spike was in our face (laughs) yeah and i saw that elk's antlers before and but I couldn't. I saw that elk's antlers before I even. I saw the spike, and then I saw his antlers, and then all of a sudden they were gone, and they were pretty close. <laughs> they were really close. <laughs> but um, as we were moving, and we had good wind, we had everything. We had great wind, and we were both surprised by what was happening because they kind of he pushed him away silently after we heard that location. But um, the cool thing is we did pick up the herd, and we did get into. We were in a really cool spot with really good wind. Um, I was sitting in some dark timber. And eventually I thought was like, well, the thought was I wanted to keep eyes on this herd because it was, again, we were coming to a place that was late in the afternoon, maybe about five o'clock, I think, when we saw this herd. And I was like, well, I want to keep eyes on them. And then we sent you to kind of put a really cool stock on. But in between us, we were in good timber. And if you kind of see the video that I'll kind of post on the the Instagram, they were, it looked to me like they were going to go into a creek bed. Yeah. For sure. So the thought was, I wanted to keep eyes on them to see if they all snuck into the creek bed, but you went and put your stalk on. Now, this stalk was a little further away. You were We were probably, what, about 150 yards, maybe? Um, Yeah, maybe even 300, dude, to be honest with you. It was pretty far. Because I was within 100. Well, it was probably 200 yards, and then I dropped downhill, looped around through the creek, and then came up through that drainage. And got within a hundred yards. So when I first initially saw him, so yeah, we we're probably about two hundred. So when you make a stalk that's a little bit further away, and we have decent wind, and you have you had more obstacles. You had the creek bed. There was a meadow between the dark timber, and you kind of were going down and around. Where I was gonna, I was gonna try and just to put eyes on them. And initially, my goal was like, okay, I'm gonna put eyes on them until they all dive in the creek bed, and then I'm gonna go close big distance. It didn't right. it didn't work out that way. But as you went on your initial stalk to get positioned beneath them, um, what what was your general thoughts? Just I mean, what goes on when you're making a stalk from that far away? And you 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 actually lost sight of them too, which is oh, a yeah, bit nerve wracking. I didn't see them for a, quite a long time, honestly. So I dropped down in the creek drainage. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to play the wind. Super duper steep where I was, you know, it was a steep hillside. And I found a game trail, which, you know, helped the stock. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to get below and try to position myself where I get something in between us and then, you know, not get blown by the wind and, you know, increase my opportunity because I too thought that they were going to come down and feed to water. I mean, that was the initial thought because they were up on a flat and then they came over that hill, which was actually pretty damn steep. Oh, yeah. And then um, they were all, you know, I think three, four, six head of the elk cows were on the hillside. Yeah. And they were, they, I mean, everything, and even that bull, he, remember, they were all above that hillside. And then that bull went down and the, some of the cows started feeding. And it was crazy. Like, um, it was crazy to watch elk be elk, you know, and even the cows, like you got more time with the bull because where I was, I stayed up high 
And my initial thought was, man, they're all going to go down. When the last one goes down, I'm going to follow them. But as I was watching this herd, I did notice one freaking cow the whole time that I don't know if we ever saw. She just stayed high. And my whole thought was, damn it, they might go into that timber behind them. You know, all signs in terms of their movement except that one cow. And the crazy part was I was watching these cows. All 12 never bedded. All 12 were never feeding. But they all seemed to, like, interchange when who was doing what. Like, that first cow that I had noticed who was up high, I first saw her just sitting high. And I said, okay, she's going to go down. It's going to be great. And then I'm watching other cows feed. I'm watching other sentinels watch around. And then as I saw her get up, she started feeding towards that timber. And I was like, shit, this is going to change things because they all might come. They all might go up. But eventually, you know, it didn't play out where they went down. They ended up going in that timber. Um but it was cool to watch elk be elk and see how cows work. Where the where, what was the bull doing while all those cows were just feeding and watching? Because you I saw said, the you bull. You know what? Honestly, Joe, I only got to see the bull twice. Okay. During that whole thing, he was on the other side. I think he was on the uh, the ridge side on the other side of the hill. Because all I sat was watched was the cows for the longest time, and then. You know, with cows doing what cows do, you know, they always have that spotter. So I never was able to advance much. And then all of a sudden the cows started heading up. And then that's when I advanced and got way, way closer. And then as I got closer, the bull let off that growl. And all of a sudden I just look up and I see the spike running. And then all of a sudden I see the bull. And then he stops at broadside at 60 yards. Mm. But I had all this all these tree limbs in my way and, and it was a no shot situation and he stood there forever and i was just like oh man <laughs> are you kidding me if i was up the hill like 10 more feet i would have had a perfect shot it was just one tree just you know that had been burnt and it had all these branches and it was <clears throat> i mean i could have flung an arrow but to me it wasn't an ethical try to shoot through the branches and pray that my arrow didn't hit and blah 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 so um and then he wrapped around, then he went back up top, and then he came back and looped around in another spot where I had no shot, and then he bumped the cows back up over the ridge, and then at that point, I crawled, bear crawled up the hill real quick, and at this point I was, again, about 50, 60 yards from the, the ridge top, and then I see his antlers coming over the ridge coming towards me, and then he just stops and peers his head over the edge looking for, I assume, looking to make sure that no more cows are left. And then he vanished. Mm. And, and that's when I ran up the hill. Well, that, and that's where we kind of came together because that's where I started seeing him because he was pushing them and moving them and making sure they were close. And it was cool to watch him do his thing because I think I saw exactly what you're talking about because there was a moment where he was up, he was down, all the cows got single file, and then he was the last one to go through the timber. And yeah. the, the, the crazy part about that scenario, as soon as his ass was in my face, I because my thing was, while you were doing all that, I was in the same scenario where I thought I was in a really great spot where I could watch. I was in shade, I was in timber. But man, every time I made a move, even with good wind, I saw one or two cows looking in my direction. And it was all I could do in that about hour and a half where you were stalking around and closing distance. I probably moved six feet. <laughs> <laughs> and and part yeah. of that was because like at first I was trying to get low and then I, then I changed my tactics. I was like, oh no, I think they're going to go back up. So I wanted to loop around and get way above. I wanted to get way back and behind them and try and sprint around. I just didn't have time and, and the clock was against me. But as soon as that bull's ass was to me and I saw he was going in that timber, I, f I sprinted that two to 300 yards, whatever it was. And that like maybe, you know, and fifth, and there was probably 50 yards of elevation to be gained up and down with that little Creek system. I sprinted it and I probably closed that distance in like two minutes. And when I got across the drainage, I, I heard raking, and I thought that was another elk, and I started going in that direction. I come to find out that was you. <laughs> yeah, that's what tripped me out, too, because right when I saw his antlers and him turn around, I ran up the hill, and then I saw his butt go in the tree line, so I just sat next to this tree and started raking it and yep. did, did some like little grunts and 
kind of fooled around a little bit and tried to get him worked up to hope that he would come back and thought it was the spike. And I did that for like a minute. And all of a sudden I look over and there's Joe. <laughs> yeah. I was like, how in the hell did you get over here so quick? I, I remember the first words I said, it was like, did you just stalk over here? I, how did you get over here? Well, it wasn't a stalk. I sprinted. I went, <laughs> I just went and you know, and, and, and then like it got dark. Like it was probably at this point, you know, right on the edge of shooting light. And I went into that timber and I tell you how dark it was. Um, I saw him going up a little higher. He was a giant. That was the biggest elk. I I mean, of all the elk we talked about in the last episode 91, this one, this one was um, the king of the region. This guy, oh, yeah. he knew what he was doing. He was right on the edge of private. I mean, and that was a thing. Like, he was pretty smart. He had his little spot. He had his little corner. And I think the cool part about his corner was it was a super – it was an accessible corner – and it was right it was right on the edge where they're going to be safe i mean he had everything they had good feed they had a great creek bottom they had great places to hide and they could really find solitude on private land now whether they know it's private or not they probably have some instincts whether they're getting pushed around or not but it was a pretty cool spot but it wasn't a spot that i don't think any hunter could get to but it was kind of a spot that would fall under the radar you know, f- oh, for sure. Because everyone wants to get right, and this would be like against, I think, what would be the popular thing a lot of guys say: find the find the spot deepest, furthest away from the road where no human will go, and that's where you'll find big giant elk. Well, this guy was pretty close to the road and pretty in a pretty accessible spot, but maybe one of those border territories where you just wouldn't think to put the hunt on. No, and he wouldn't allow any other bull there. He was the only herd that didn't have a satellite bull that we seen in those three rut days yeah and that spike he kept pushing them out yeah and and you know i got to thinking about it because i think because we because we took our nap we threw out a locate we got the growler and then we heard another bugle remember Mm -hmm. i think it was that spike that bugled and i'm pretty sure that bull was like you need to get out of here because you're gonna blow it yeah that's right (laughs) you're gonna ruin this for me i got my sanctuary i got everything i need here i got my girl i got 12 girls and that seems like the magic number 10 to 12 yeah all these big bulls had 10 to 12 cows yeah i mean that seems like the it was the the magic number or the number that those guys figured out up there however they do that but um but that 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 I thought was kind of interesting. How he was in that solitude area, wouldn't allow that even spike to be around. Yeah, and it's like he had a good control. He knew what he was doing. Well, and and, and to, I don't. I was go gonna say, you you got to see something really cool that you told me about afterwards, and it would also lead me to believe that like he was in a true rut condition. The pre rut was over for this guy, because didn't you say he tried to he tried to he tried to mount one of them ladies in front of you. Oh, yeah. He was doing the old lick thing and everything. And then he jumped up on her and she took two steps forward and I could see him go, damn. And then he went over and did the lick thing again and then jumped up back on her and she took two steps forward. He goes, damn. And he did that three or four times. That's crazy to see that. And even one time, I think it might have, because I think they're pretty quick when they do it. I think he might have, it might have happened one time because he was up on her for a little bit. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. He, but, uh, he, he, he did his thing. It, and so it's not a long romantic drawn out thing like the, like, like the movies want to portray, huh? Even in, even amongst elk herds, it's, it's wham, yeah. bam, thank you, ma'am. I mean, yeah, it's he's like <laughs> in and out. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but that was the only hunt where I was super frustrated and pissed off. And I think if, if I'm going to explain it to you now, but when you came up and you said, we need to go hunt it. And I looked at you and I said, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. You want to go chase him? You go chase him. Yeah, that's right. And I did. It's the only time I've ever gotten super pissed off because I was so close and could almost taste it. (laughs) And I guess it's where the greed was. I just, I wanted that big bull. And I really, in my head, thought it was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're right. I do remember that now that you bring it up because I was like, well, we still, I can still see a bit. And I think they're right in that timber. I actually thought they were bedded right on the other side. That timber was really cool. I'd like to have gone back there in the daytime and seen it more. But I did decide to close it out when I saw him. I did see him at a distance, probably about, you know, 
within a hundred yards in the timber, but it was just like, ah, it's too, I couldn't see his antlers anymore. And at that point I was like, when he's that close and I can't make out those features that I could make out a hundred yards away, it's time to call it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to exactly. give up either, but, um, that was an amazing, it was an amazing hunt. That was an amazing experience for lots of reasons, but it was cool to see that those public land bulls are, in existence that can be that big and that cool and um man i wish the video would do it. i'll i'll try and get this one up but it was cool to watch him work it was cool to watch cows feed it was cool to watch calves birth not not birth um i got to watch while i was watching that herd um there was a calf kind of feeding on mom which was cool yeah and it was probably the only time where for a moment we could see the elk not be pressured and it was cool to watch elk be elk when they were kind of just chilled out which was cool for me. Yeah, no, and I think, you know what was cool for me is the fact that you and I were in there on those three days in the middle of the herds. I mean, and we played every hunt so perfectly. We only got winded one time out of the nine, I think there's nine different pursuits we had, and we only got winded one time. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I thought we played the wind good. It's just, it, but it speaks to how hard this is. You know what I mean? Yeah. It speaks to how hard it is. This was a fun one. That was a really crazy day. You know, I and, think what was really cool was on top of that mountain was the six wallow wallow. Oh, yeah. That giant wallow where they all were, where all the rut fests were happening. Yeah. Cause that was cool too. Um, when we came out, we found this giant wallow. It was like a big pond that had six wallows in it. <laughs> Yeah, it was amazing. Well, I I think even cooler than that wallow was the next day we found another wallow that was probably, I don't know, what, like 150 yards from the big party? But it it seemed to me like this wallow was the one that the big cheese must have been using. Um, yeah, you, you you called it his own private wallow. Yeah, I called it. Um, I forget <laughs> what, I, what you said. Yeah, I forget what I named this elk, and I can pull it up because you know Onyx is cool for lots of things, but one of the rain things is you can go back and check these things, and if you actually take good notes on the Onyx, you can go back and remember what you said. I think I called this like the big cheese's private private party pool or something. I don't know. <laughs> I named it something funny. <laughs> But he had his own wallow, and it was cool. And we sat on that for a little bit, hoping that he might come back and use it. But I think finally they had seen enough pressure, and they had found that good spot off pressure that they just weren't going to get as um, we did. They just weren't going to get as much pressure. So, um, but it was pretty amazing. I'll I'll post a picture of that for sure. The private wallow was cool, and we sat. Yeah, up, that was cool. We sat up on that for because it was bit. out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, yeah, and it was just out there. I mean, we just stumbled upon it, and it was just out there in the middle of nowhere. It was just like he literally dug down to the water and pushed the mud out and then wallowed up. But you could tell that it didn't get used much. Yeah. What did I mean, I, that, was, that was kind of the cool thing. What did I name this wallow? What did I call this guy? Very. That whole ridge system, though, was pretty pretty unbelievable and pretty productive had some big mule deer on it you got to put some stock on which we'll probably talk about in a later podcast oh yeah so i called it so all this is happening on dragon ridge and we were calling a lot from dragon tower and i called this guy boss dragon so he was this was boss dragon's private wallow just yeah. just down from grand wallow <laughs> 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 Grand Wallow Central, right? So, but it was great. It was cool to see him, and um, you know, I, he might be the one that gets away from you, huh? So, if you if you're gonna have a one that got away tail, do you think this would be like the one that got away tail that you take to the grave? I think so, dude. <laughs> I mean, I've, I'm still playing it in my head. Everything that I would have done different, and I think I would have sealed the deal because what I should have done is not. So when I came around the base or came out of the creek, I came up. I should have dropped everything and then dropped back down and then wrapped around and came up the other ridge where he pushed that, um, where he pushed the spike. And then at that point, I would have been able to get a better shot on them, still would have been able to play the wind and um, I would have got a lot closer and would have been able to use a bunch of trees 
yeah. as concealment so that I could close in on them. And I, I would have probably been within 50 yards of the whole herd if I would have went that way rather than the hundred mm. or so of where I was positioned. And I sat in that one position for, you know, the hundred yards away, my original position, I sat there for almost an hour, I believe. I, I don't know, just, I don't know how long I was down there, but we took our time on that one. And again, it was tough cause it was the end of the day. Right. And we, um, I would say if I wanted to play that one over again, I don't know. And again, this is something we were both pretty convinced they were going to go down. I wonder if I would have seen that cow sooner, that one just lingering. If I would have, it would have been cool to get the intuition to go around and up sooner. And maybe even yeah. so soon where maybe we had no way. Cause when we first picked up that herd, they were going down and why wouldn't they go into the Creek and bed for the night? You know, why would they go up into that timber? You know, that, it would have been nice to even just entertain the idea sooner when we were further back to go up and into that other timber section. But I don't know how we would have gotten that because, one, the wind wasn't great that way. We would have had to cross, cross a lot more open land, and we would have lost sight of the animals. So, you know, that would have been like the, hey, let's let's try this curveball instead. I got this harebrained idea. Yeah. And, and we both would have been like, ah, I don't – that's a lot more work, you know, so – and people are probably wondering why we thought that they were going to go down to the creek bottom. And the reason is, is when we saw them up top, yeah. when we came up over that hill, they were single filed up and they were going down there. And the lead cow went down towards the creek. Yes. And then, then they all froze up for a while. We watched them for probably 10 minutes. And then onesie, twosie, threesie started going down. And we thought, okay, here's the time. That's why we thought they were going to go down in the creek bottom. Yeah. And then we wrapped around, and what they ended up doing is switching back and then just feeding on that hillside up towards each other, the other part of the herd. Yeah. It was it was, so. it was a great hunt. It was great to see elk be elk. It was great to put a shot or a stalk on some big stuff. And there's two stalks we kind of talked about on, on this big hunt, and um, it was fun. And you know what? I, and t- I was talking about having greed for meat. I got greed for more experiences like that, man. I can't wait to do it again. Um you know, I know it was fun. It was great. Um, I had a great time too. We're greedy to hear your experiences. Um, we're greedy to hear what you he- think about the show and us reliving um, a great early archery season. Um, we had a blast with it. So uh, let us know, man, if if these shows are helpful, happy. Um, let us know. I do want to throw a bone to one. To uh, we got one question, Jeremy. I don't know if you're following. Um, we did get a couple questions um, from a listener, um, Tim. Thanks for shooting us some questions tim asked of all the questions he sent us he sent us a lot of questions tim and we'll get to (laughs) get to all of them but you asked that one question about um can a hunter approaching 60 do a hunt like this and i would say yes i would say i I would say a hunter who's approaching 60 can do whatever hunt they want um but i would just think that you have to know what you're capable of and you have to be hunting with people who are going to let you um, operate within your means and you, you know, your hunts should kind of be in a wheelhouse that you've prepared for. Right. I think, I think if you had come on this hunt with me and Jeremy and we had forced you to log the miles we logged, you would have probably failed. But I think if you had trained up for the hunt, that would have been better and I think that in the same way, Jeremy, that we were kind of talking about how we have a good mix when we hunt together because we kind of we push and pull each other and we push and support each other and we we have a good sense for our limitations. So I think anyone who's hunting of any age can do whatever hunt they want. You just have to do the due diligence to prepare for it. You know what I mean? If, if you're sitting on your rump and you're prepared to hunt from the truck, well, that's where you should hunt from. But if you've kind of put in some miles hiking and, you know, you have an idea for your 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 capacities, then I think the sky's the limit on what you can do. You just have to be honest with yourself. And I, that's kind of a political answer and maybe doesn't give you what you want. But, yeah, I think you can do it. You just got to you got to work up to it. What do you think, man? Yeah, no, I 100 percent agree. And um, you just got to learn how to use the terrain correctly, too. I mean, you can work harder or, or smarter, right? Um, so with that terrain, the smarter way to do is sometimes you go a little further, but you don't have to go straight up. You just kind of got a zigzag. There's a few times where we use the hillsides rather than going straight up. And there's sometimes where we just went straight up 
and because we could and we cut some time off. So I think learning the terrain too and then using it to your advantage so you don't exert as much energy and or push yourself beyond what you can do. Yeah, like you're saying, 100%. You got to train for it. But yeah. you can also use the terrain in well, your advantage. Well, maybe you won't. Maybe you will decide that when you hear that bugle, that's just not where you're going to go because it's out of your hunt parameter, right? And I would say this too. I would think there was there was one hunt for sure where our fitness and our zeal and our aggression got the best of us, and maybe we'll get into it. But remember when we put that location and we sprinted down that damn mountain, and all of a sudden we're face to face with a herd of forty, <laughs> right? We and, freaking passed them twice. <laughs> Yeah, so we went by them, and then when we got, we were it was it was crazy how loud they were, and you could get a sense for where they were. But then, like, it was crazy how quick you would get on top of them. That was really oh, weird. Yeah. That one time we got really close, um, and I think I think our excitement to close distance quickly, we closed it a lot quicker than we thought. And maybe we'll talk about that hunt on the next one. Sounds good, man. Because we did it. We got into them, folks. Uh, we didn't get them, but we got into them, <laughs> which is really cool. Yards away. Yards away. Um, so uh, from some big ones, more big ones. And, again, I got video of that, too. But uh, we'll work through it. Um, review the show. Buy socks from Ellsworth, B&B20. Um, great socks. And I'll say this. I wore. I took three pairs of socks with me, one pair that I wore to bed in the heavy winter sock, one pair was my backup sock that I kept in my pack, and then I had one pair on my feet that I was hunting in. That pair I wore on my feet covered all 100-plus miles, and my feet stayed dry. I had no blisters, which is an testament to the socks and the boots because i broke broken a new pair of boots on this hunt from Danner, um, so check those out. But, um, Sienna, I can't say enough about Ellsworth Socks, and I don't think you folks will either, so check out ellsworthsocks.com, the most advanced sock in the game, stay drier longer, V-Channel Technology, it's patented. It's the best wool you're going to get on the planet. Did I miss anything, Jeremy, about Ellsworth socks? <laughs> no, they're just the best thing since peanut butter and jelly, man. Nutella. Nutella and Jeff. Nutella and Jeff. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> we'll get after it, folks. Well, I had a great one, Jeremy. You're the man. Um, guys, until the next one, train, hunt, and live your best life possible. And Jeremy, can't wait to talk to you again and relive these great hunts, man. I appreciate it, brother. Yeah, ditto, my friend. Thank you for reliving them with me as well. God bless America. Get it, folks. <laughs> <laughs>